Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello, and welcome to another episode of I Weigh with Jamila Jamil. I hope you're okay. And especially if you're in America and you maybe just did or didn't get to spend time with your family, are you all right? I wish I could hear your answer. Both are very stressful. One, not being around the people that you love in this incredibly stressful, lonely year that is so hard. And two, if you had to either spend all day on Zoom with them as you ate your dry turkey in your house, or if you had to be with them in a room, maybe you travelled to bubble with them. Jesus Christ. It's not easy for everyone. However much you've missed your family, maybe you've lost some of your patient settings that you had acquired when you were a more kind of socially etiquette gifted person before this lockdown. I know that I've definitely, I've said it before, I've devolved during this year. I'm leaving this with zero new skills and actually less skills than I entered into lockdown. Anyway, I hope that you have got some time now for yourself to breathe, to recover and to gather your thoughts. Maybe maybe you've used this time to work out what it is that you want to, well, maybe work on in the next year. Be that yourself, be that your life or be that relationship with your family and, and maybe where you're living and what you're doing and, and are you happy? I think sometimes these things can be quite a good check-in, a marker of, okay, another year has gone by. Where am I at? How do I feel? What am I doing? So just some thoughts. I, uh, I did Thanksgiving, which is, is my Thanksgiving, where I don't have to deal with all of the sort of um, the darker side of the history of what Thanksgiving is. And instead, I just celebrate Tom Hanks's life uh, with my friends and we watch Tom Hanks movies that we love and we eat all of the normal food with the trimmings. Uh, we deviate slightly because we're all shit at cooking and we don't really <laughs> deserve to call ourselves adults. Uh, but that's what I did. And it was incredibly fun. So next year, if you're looking for a new thing to do on this odd, dark historical day, um, maybe you could try that. It's very fun. I do it every single year. Anyway, let's talk about vaginas. Are you ready? I've wanted to talk about this so much since I started this podcast and I finally managed to get hold of my favourite gynaecologist and one of my favourite voices online, Dr. Jen Gunter. Maybe you already know her from following me because I constantly repost her work, but she's such a feminist icon. She is someone who has democratised and demystified and detabooified the conversation around such an important part of our lives, not just only in how we live us, you know, how we live our own lives, how other people see us, how other people treat us. We have been taught to pretend that this incredibly vital organ is not there. And I'm not just talking about the vagina, I'm talking about the vulva, I'm talking about the late, I'm talking about all of it. I decided to ask Jen Gunter loads of your questions, loads of my questions about her her path through gynaecology, how male-orientated all of women's healthcare has always been. 
and all of the questions that she most gets as a gynaecologist from worried women who have been kept in the dark for such a long time about our pleasure, about how our bodies work, about things like vaginismus or things like difficulty having sex or reaching orgasms or difficulty in accepting our bodies or going through menopause, etc, etc, etc. All of the terrible ways in which women are conned into thinking we have to fix our vaginas are vaginas that are not broken that are as our bodies need them and intend them to be. We talk about the entire giant market, even that women promote now, that is teaching us that we need to put different scents in our vaginas. We need to hate the way that they smell, hate the way that they look, hate the way that they move and 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 hate everything about them. We must try to fix them and cover them and scent them. We talk about that entire corrupt industry and why it exists, who is perpetuating it, who benefits from it. And, and why it's so incredibly dangerous, not just for us emotionally, but truly physically on a long-term basis sometimes. We really, I mean, we just, there's nowhere we didn't go. I think we even talked about the arsehole briefly. But uh, I hope you enjoy this episode. I think it's going to answer a load of questions for you. She blew my mind. I had no idea until I read her book, The Vagina Bible, which you have to go out and buy because it's truly one of the most exceptional things I've ever read. But also when I had this conversation, you get to hear me have true sort of light bulb switched on moments of of horror in this podcast as I learn things about myself, my body and my experience with other gynecologists. She's a bloody saint and I'm so lucky I got to have her here. She's funny. She's cool. We need so many more gynecologists like her in this world and also just human beings. Send this to every woman, man or non-binary person you know, because frankly, the world would be a better place if we all understood the goddamn vagina better. Here's Dr. Jen Gunter. You need little to no introduction. You are the queen of the vagina and the vulva. You have a vagenda that I cannot wait to get into with you. Uh, Dr. Jen Gunter, welcome to iWay. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, you are one of my favourite follows on Twitter. You have been for a couple of years now. And I I am so excited to talk all things the vagina with you. You are a gynaecologist. You're not just vaginally obsessed, uh, <laughs> although probably both. Um, and I, as an English person, will admit to having been formally vaginally awkward uh, and af- afraid... <laughs> horrified, uh, totally uh, patriarchally soaked in my opinion of the vagina. I was very squeamish uh, when I picked up your book called The Vagina Bible. In fact, I left it as late as I could to read it uh, before this chat because I was was scared. And uh, upon reading it, my whole world has changed and my whole mind has shifted what I have started to understand, how many old wives tales I realise I have believed, uh, the history of our societal relationship with the vagina. This book, you answer every question myself or my friends have ever had. Uh, It came out last year and it is just so revolutionary to the point where I can't get it back because all of my male friends have stolen it and keep passing it around between themselves. And now I, uh, I am without my copy. So I just would love to take this opportunity to talk to you about everything that you know. 
first things first, what is your agenda? My agenda is for every every person to know how their body works. And especially for women who have been marginalized by science, by society, to have an understanding of their body function, because you can't be empowered about your health without accurate information. Yeah. I was, I was talking to my boyfriend this morning about it and I was like, it's kind of been like the deep blue sea. You know, it's like, what's out there? That's how a lot of women feel about our own reproductive systems. We don't really know or what's going on or what it looks like or how to protect it. Uh, we just know what we've been told to do that would be most pleasing for a straight man. Right, exactly. I think that so many images that are out there are just so false. So many, you know, I, for example, with my kids, I have a 17 year old twin boys. And every time a sex scene comes on in a movie, I start counting from, you know, the second the sex is supposed to start till the female orgasm is mm-hmm. supposed to happen. And it's usually like five seconds. Yeah, but that's accurate. <laughs> that's, that's completely accurate. Uh, no exactly, one has yeah. to No, Yeah, she's already instantly completely wet and comes immediately. I know I do. So, you know, same, I'm sure same with you and everyone listening. Absolutely. Just see the glory of the penis and oh my God, you're 99% of the way there. 100%. (laughs) So, you know, so my kids are like, oh my God, you're not timing again, are you? I'm like, yes, yes, I am. Um, And so, you know, when your whole life is surrounded by imagery like that and you go to the doctor's office and you're, you're not given any factual information to start with. And, you know, every, every woman's magazine is just obsessed with telling you about how to fix your non-existent odor problem. It's really easy to see how how it's such a steep climb to get actual factual information. But if they keep us in the dark about it, it's so easy for them to sell us products that we don't, if we don't understand the actual organ itself or the the system itself, then we don't know what is good or isn't good for it. And they rely upon that mystique uh, that they have created out of shame and taboo and stigma. First of all, this was one of the things that I found so Like I couldn't put the book down from the beginning because you take us through the history of gynecology and I would love for you to just impart that wisdom upon everyone else and tell us the history of uh, and how short the history is of uh, medicine's investigation into the female reproductive system. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, so for Western medicine is, you know, built on Hippocratic medicine, ancient Greek medicine, and, you know, the whole sort of underpinnings is that, you know, women are basically defective men. I mean, that's, you know, that's the hypothesis is that, you know, we're, we're leaky versions of men. And they, you know, for example, they thought menstruation was the excess fluid coming out each month. And when you were failure fluid. Yeah, it's failure fluid. Exactly. Exactly. Oh yeah. And and you know what happened when you got pregnant? That failure fluid backed up into your breasts. And I think this is such a, you know, a key example of absence of diversity, right? So if there's no woman around in sort of ancient medicine to say, hey, you know what? You know, it comes out of my breasts, it actually feeds the babies, it's milk, you know, that might actually have changed the conversation. So, you know, in ancient times, you know, there were no, they didn't decide women's bodies. They didn't examine women's bodies. And so basically, you know, they would, physicians and scholars would hear what women said about their bodies. And they say, okay, well, let me mansplain that back to you with my world order. And part of this was because, you know, it felt unreligious to be kind of, to touch uh, the the private parts, in quote unquote, uh, of a woman you are not married to. And so that was part of, that was part of the kind of awkwardness around even investigating it. 
Right. But that also is really fascinating. That also inability to sort of have a man around a naked woman also has shaped our beauty ideals. Because if you look at ancient Greek sculptures, they're mostly men's bodies that have then had female heads tacked on. So talk about, you know, an impossible beauty ideal, you know, women, naked women couldn't sit for sculptures. And so, you know, they would take a male body, they would sculpt that and then add what they thought were ideal breasts and ideal hips and things. So, you know, sort of, we've been sort of, there hasn't been any accurate information about our bodies from the inside out, I think, since the beginning. And so when do you feel like things changed? When did we start to, you know, see, you know, I, I think who are you talking about who had created an anatomical version that was as good as anything, rivals anything we have now? Oh, I mean, there, you know, so there is a big um, sort of, uh, I would say advancement in anatomy in the 15 and 1600s with the Renaissance. And it wasn't because medicine was interested in knowing more. It was because artists wanted to paint more accurate bodies, which is also a great example of why the arts and medicine should be more connected. You know, traditionally we've said it should only be, you know, you should have hardcore science background, but you know, it shows how art is actually very valuable um, in medicine. And so once you started getting greater, you know, anatomic knowledge, people started studying and, and, you know, dissecting female bodies. And so really by, you know, the early 1800s, we had a pretty accurate anatomical understanding, you know, things like hormones hadn't been discovered. And so we didn't understand how it all worked. But then, you know, along came Freud and the Victorians and this whole sort of incredibly impressive, uh, oppressive um, belief of female sexuality. And that really, I think, knocked everything back. I mean, I don't want to sort of leave people with the impression that in the late 1700s, you know, this was like a quality for all in medicine, but at least we had accurate factual anatomical information and really everything just went, you know, sideways with Freud and the Victorians. I mean, Sigmund Freud, what a bastard. What yeah, about right? so many fucking lies? I'm going to beat him up. Yeah. I mean, this, this whole myth of the, you know, the vaginal orgasm and clitoral orgasms and, you know, it's, we still see it today. And, and think about that. This is over a hundred years old. This has been disproven for a long time that there, you know, that we know that when women have an orgasm, whether it's from penile penetration or some other sex toy in the vagina, or it's from external manipulation, it's all the same machinery. You're just accessing at a different point. It's not a different sort of, you know, orgasm structurally per say. And yet women are made to feel as if, you know, they're orgasming without a penis, that there's something wrong with them. A hundred percent. Yeah. You had a, a percentage that was something like under 30% of, of uh, vaginal penetration will lead to orgasm. And yeah. I know so many women who feel as though they have failed and therefore fake an orgasm because they're just like, what's wrong with me? Am I missing the G spot, the magical G spot I'm supposed to have? Uh, yeah. and, and, and also men feel like women have failed when they don't come from vaginal penetration and, you know, are just, they, they feel a bit like disappointed in you afterwards. Yeah. I mean, sex has become very metric driven, right? Like, you yeah. know, and I, and this is, again, gets back to what we were talking about, about this lack of accurate information. If people don't understand how to have good sex, then where else do they go? They go to TV shows, they go to, you know, maybe Pornhub. less factual sources. Yeah. And, you know, they, you know, it's, it's amazing to me how many people mistake everything that they see on, on TV or film about sex, whether it's pornography or whether it's, you know, um, something that's just, you know, insinuated in a TV show that they, they think that that's real. And it's like, no, that's all acting. It's I know. Acting. I know. And it's, it's funny. Like it's, um, I almost wish, 
everyone was dressed like they were in Avatar, you know, so there'd be like a clear sign that this is a fantasy. I feel like that's that's a way that we are able to engage with animation or with sci-fi is the fact that it's very clearly not real. It's not real human beings. It's someone else's imagination. Right. I think everyone should be blue in pornography. That's just <laughs> something that I feel. Um, okay, so as a gynecologist and also as someone who is, you know, such a, a, a prevalent and, and outgoing online presence. Uh, what would you say are some of the most questions that you get on or offline from women about their bodies? I think the biggest question I get is about vaginal discharge. You know, women have been so, um, I would say, um, you know, encultured to believe that that it's abnormal to have wetness between their legs. And I think that's probably a really, really pervasive question that I get, like, you know, how much discharge is normal, um, you know, is what's going on normal. I think that that's, that's a big, um, that, you know, and it, that gets back to this culture of shame, right? Like, oh, a wet vagina is a sign of, you know, of, of a loose woman right? As someone who's undesirable to society, to this patriarchal definition of what a woman should be. And it's amazing how these things are still ingrained in us mm. that, um, that is the sort of generational. Um, and so, but you know, the subliminal messaging is everywhere. If you go to a drugstore and you see shelves and shelves of products designed to tame a normal vagina, you're going to maybe think that yours is a problem. Yeah. A hundred percent tame and scent it. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, it's a vagina, not a pina colada. Is it not a pina colada? <laughs> well, there is there is some overlap. I mean, tasty. Yeah, fine. lovely. Uh, yeah. But that's why, um, um, that's why, you know, you and I have both been very vocally supportive of the old WAP, of the wonderful yes. messaging of Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion. You felt very, yes. you know, you felt very pleased that they were endorsing what you've been saying all along, which is that a, a wet ass pussy is something yeah. to be, uh, to be, glorified and and adored and not something to be ashamed of and so yeah this is I mean truly honestly since reading your book before reading your book I would have felt so shy having this conversation and now I'm just I just want to scream about it to everyone and so and so I think that one of the things that I found so interesting about your book was you explaining not only what, you know, how normal all these bodily functions are but where they come from which gland or which part of the body and why they exist um and is there any advice you have to anyone who might be struggling with the amount of uh, vaginal discharge that they have and, and for them to know that this isn't always a sign of some sort of infection or yeast overgrowth? Yeah. So, you know, what I always say to, to people is, is that, you know, has there been a change from what you normally experience? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, have you been with a new sexual partner where you might be concerned that you've contracted a sexually transmitted infection? Because certainly that can sometimes present as a discharge. But, you know, is there an odor? Has the color changed? And those are things that definitely, you know, are probably worth checking out um, if they're if they're lasting for more than a day or two. Um, but, you know, so those, and I have actually a video I put up on my, my webpage and on YouTube a while back where I just showed what the normal amount of discharge is, two to three milliliters. And that's, you know, almost a panty liner completely soaked. And people are just shocked when they see that video. And I do that in the office. I'll pull out a syringe and I'll fill it up with some fluid and I'll pull iodine in the fluid. So, you know, you can see it on a pad and I'll show people how much one or two milliliters really is. Mm. Uh, And I think it's really important we talk about it. You know, a few years ago on Instagram, there was this like underwear challenge where women were showing their underwear at the end of the day to brag that they didn't have any discharge. What? Yes. Yes. Oh my God. 
And, you know, I'm like, you know, if, if you don't want to see it, just don't wear black underwear, but you know, I mean, it's normal, you know, it's, it's, I, that's one of the reasons why I love the movie obvious child that was out a few years ago, because they actually had a real sort of panty discharge scene. And I was like, in the audience, it was (laughs) just so great to see a sex scene with underwear that had a big streak of discharge on it. Yeah. I I thought that was awesome. Yeah. It's so revolutionary. It's such a shame that that's considered revolutionary. Although like, yeah. And so, uh, let's also talk about squirting. It's okay. It's it's (laughs) yes, pretty much. Yeah. So, which, you know, is, is fine. I mean, sex is is supposed to be wet and messy and fluids are going to come out. And it's always amazing to me that, that when you, when you try to explain that it could be urine, that people get offended. I'm like, well, with semen comes out of a dude's penis. Like, how is that not like a gross bodily fluid? Is there any urine in, in, in semen? I don't think so, but okay. I don't. Re- I don't really spend a lot of time studying men's junk. So Fair that's somebody, somebody else can write the penis bible. The okay, whole world, great. everything's a penis bible. <laughs> the, but, bible penis yeah, the bible. Yeah, the bible is the penis bible. Exactly. <laughs> but, um, okay, but, so know, yeah, and so that's again, it's nothing to be ashamed of, but also that you know, I, I don't think a lot of men know this, and then they make people, you know, they they kind of some men really want to achieve the sort of Bellagio fountain, as Whitney Cummings calls it, uh, it effect uh, after sex, but then also don't want to believe that that is essentially urine. It's the emptying of the bladder. Yeah. And I mean, it's really, it's a kind of a fascinating concept. So I think most people don't understand that, you know, the, when you have an orgasm, what's really happening sort of mechanically is the pelvic floor muscles are contracting. Mm -hmm. And of course that could squeeze the bladder for some people and they may empty. That makes perfect sense. And it's possible that for some people, they, it may be an incredibly strong orgasm that does that. So you, so, so women who say, listen, when I squirt, it feels more sexually satisfying. Sure. There's an absolute biological reason I could, I could explain that, but to sort of say that that's sort of a normal or that's a metric is incorrect. Um, and, and normal meaning that every, like every single person should do it. And so if you're not, there's a problem with your body. 100%. If it's typically, if it's typical for you, that's great. Um, and, you know, I had a really interesting conversation with a woman who, um, who's, you know, an adult film actress. And, you know, she said that, that before the scenes where, where she's supposed to squirt, she chugs Pedialyte um, to fill up her bladder. So her bladder's very dilute. And so when the fluid comes out, it looks clear. Oh, right. And also it's probably quite plentiful. Um, talk to yes. me about pubic hair. Um, yeah, pubic hair, it's, um, it's, it's good for you. Um, you know, it's a, it's it, removing its cosmetic. I think that that's something that people are shocked with. I, it never ceases to amaze me the number of women in the office. When I say pubic hair is normal, they're actually shocked. That's mm-hmm. how, how encultured they've become to sort of believe that there's something wrong with it. And if you want to modify your body, great. That's, that's your prerogative. Some people get tattoos. Some people get their ears pierced. Some people wax their eyebrows, you know, some people dye their hair and, you know, have, have differing now colors. Um, so it's, to- it's totally fine. Um, but just to understand that there are health risks that could happen with it and it has a function. So what are those health risks? I think this is really well, interesting. Yeah. So injury is a big one. So we see a lot of injuries in grown hairs, um, that, you know, end up getting infected. Uh, and, um, you know, the, the thing is pubic hair probably, you know, serves a role by maintaining the humidity of the vulvar skin and as a protection and probably others, some other mechanisms as well. But like, is it supposed you know, to keep dust out in my head? <laughs> I was always like, it's keeping the dust and the germs out. 
<laughs> well, it, you know, it, it probably, you know, <laughs> My not producer quite. is dying in the other room. Not quite. Sorry, uh, maybe okay. not quite like that. Okay, um, but, you know, but the concept. That's all right. <laughs> no, <laughs> conceptually. I think it's like the eyelashes, you know, it's just all keeping the, keeping the dust and the grit out. Well, it, you know, it probably does trap dirt and debris. Back in the day when we were, didn't have clothes to do that. Right. So, yeah. you know, I think that, you know, that that's an important concept, but yeah, it has a role in protection. Um, but, you know, if people choose to remove it, then they just have to accept that, you know, they may have, they may have drier skin. They may, they may get infections. Um, and, you know, people are grown ups. I think that I don't want to ever tell someone that what they shouldn't do anything with their body. It's their body. They should do what they want with it. But you should, should know the repercussion and know that that yeah. isn't necessarily the norm uh, based on, you know, what is, I think we have this idea that no hair looks clean, whereas actually the, what would be slightly cleaner and better for everything is potentially on a scientific level, having pubic hair that's there for a reason. Yeah. I mean, it's really fascinating. I mean, pubic hair, the absence of pubic hair is sort of, um, pubic hair was the definition of, of puberty, of not puberty, definition of nudity in the United States for a long time. And so the, you know, strip clubs and, uh, you know, women would remove more and more of their pubic hair so they could show more and more of their skin. As long as you weren't showing pubic hair, you weren't, you know, being publicly nude. Um, and so it sort of has, I think, became that sort of connotation with, you know, being sexy that way. Uh, but I think it's important to remember that, you know, pubic hair has fads and it's like everything else. It comes and goes. And, um, and so women should just be mindful maybe about permanent removal because, you know, then it's not going to come back, but, you know, people used to shave all their pubic hair, you know, back in the day of the 13, 1400s to get rid of pubic lice. And then, um, and then they realized that you could see your syphilis ulcers. So then they wore pubic hair wigs called Merkins. Wow, I didn't know that that was the history of the Merkin. Yeah, that's that. That's apparently the original history. Um, so yeah, so bloody hell. But you know, hey, if you, I mean, I think it's um, it's just fascinating to understand like how much of body modifications have they they follow trends and other things that you know that a hundred percent, a hundred percent. You know, but I just always caution people when anything is associated with purity and cleanliness for women, that there's almost always a patriarchal overtone, you know, overtone to it. Yeah. Um, because the language of pure, clean, and natural is used to sell shit to women all the time. Yeah. And, and that's, of course, that would be like the same marketing tagline you'd use for like America's Next Virgin Bride, if that was your television show. Well, uh, it's coming. Uh, so produced it? by Mike Pence, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm <laughs> Executive sorry. producer. Um, why is there hair around the asshole? <laughs> also, very it, nice to meet you, by the way. Uh, <laughs> it's very delicate skin back there. You know, you've got to be really careful. People get perianal dermatitis. And once they get that, that's a real bitch to, to get rid of. What so, is that? What is that? Um, so perianal dermatitis is sort of chronic irritation of the skin around the anus. And, you know, I mean, stool is a chemical irritant and we're wiping back there all the time. And so um, as we age, that skin gets more fragile. And so once it gets inflamed, it can be really hard to get rid of. Um, that's why bidets are great because they don't traumatize the skin as much. Yeah, so I'm, so I'm afraid of a bidet. I'm afraid oh. of, I'm, ter I've te I'm terrified. I've never used one. I think it's because uh, I had an incident a couple of years ago where I walked in and someone had a bidet and I went to the toilet. I opted out of all of the cleaning and drying and like, you know how it gives you like a sort of 
like sort of (laughs) offers to sort of tong your pubic hair and stuff like it's a full service back there so I opted out and I just went for the flush and it flushed and then I got out and it sort of malfunctioned and had a bit of a nervous breakdown and then just (laughs) shot bidet water uh into what uh was my face and mouth uh because I was facing it trying to figure out how to fix it and it just shot right into my face and and after that I uh, I was traumatized um so it's really good to actually open up about this moment with everyone um but but it made me afraid and it made me just fit fear fear such well, a strength of water but but you you similarly to the french support the bidet absolutely yeah. absolutely and i you know i would you know the best way to get over a phobia is exposure therapy um <laughs> I'll stick my head yeah. in a bidet next time I see one. <laughs> um, yeah, I uh, no, I just think that's really interesting. I just, I just like learning about this stuff. I'm super yeah. ignorant, especially about anything below the waist because I've been so shy and like I can't look at it. Um, <laughs> I'll turn into a statue if I look at it. Uh, and so yeah. all of these things, and you hear all these terms. I think my friend called the hair around the asshole an anal beard, which I thought uh, I'd like to share with all of you because it hasn't left me. So I, I don't want that's to a, leave any of you either. You know, that's a good image. I'll have to send you one of my, I have a vol, I have vulvar selfie sticks. So Great. You can, like, look. I'll send you one of those. Thank, thank you very much. Um, thank you very much. I, I might not post any of those. Um, maybe <laughs> no. we could call our, maybe we could call this girl band that we're sort of accidentally starting together on Twitter, anal beard. Anyway, moving on, doctor. Uh, Talk to me about vaginismus, please, from a medical standpoint. I've spoken about this before with a relationship therapist on this podcast, but I would love to know. I would love to know more about vaginismus. What is it? What do we do? What's what's going on? So vaginismus is a very common cause of pain with sex. And I think one of the most if the, if people only took one thing away from this podcast would be that, that sex, um, if sex is painful, then that's a sign of a medical condition. So, you know, I would want as so many women just suffer for years thinking that that's how it's supposed to be. So that, so the muscles that wrap around the pelvic floor, the levator ani, um, and the other groups of muscles, the levator they, what? The levator ani, A-N-I. Okay. Um, and so it's this big group of muscles. Those are the muscles that contract for orgasm. They support the pelvic floor. And if they become too tight, what happens is that produces a mechanically smaller vaginal opening. And they can be very tender, just like if you have a Charlie horse, right? How sore the muscles are. And so that's what vaginismus is. It's the muscles contracting when they should be relaxing. Because normally with penetration, the pelvic floor relaxes. It's actually a reflex. Yeah. And so what happens is they have the opposite. And it's not in your head. It's something that's happening at a you know, totally biomechanical level. And it's very treatable with physical therapy, home, working with dilators. Um, And that's, it's one of the things that's the most satisfying to treat because we have so many answers and people can learn so much about their body during the treatment. Um, But getting people in for treatment can be challenging because a lot of insurances don't pay for physical therapy. Yeah. And also just probably quite a lot to do with women's bodies in particular. Um, I, I, wanted to ask you if it also can have a psychological cause though is there any like link between psychological so for example like a trauma victim uh you know who's someone who's been a victim of specifically sexual trauma can can that go on to cause vaginismus at all can that lend itself to vaginismus can is there a communication between the 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 brain and its you know trauma response and those muscles So there can be, but not always. So some women do have a history of having a traumatic sexual experience. Mm -hmm. Sadly, that's so common amongst so many women having had that history of trauma. Um, But it's something that, um, that can happen 
as a response to having a painful episode, like for example, the pain of an IUD insertion, it could, that could trigger it for some women. It could happen because of it or be part of it could be a previous sexual trauma experience, but it can also just happen out of the blue. Mm. And I think that it's like most things that are pain related, it's usually very complex and it's a bunch of different things together because obviously there's women who've been very traumatized sexually who, who never develop it. And so there's probably very unique reasons why some people develop one condition and someone else doesn't just like, you know, some people develop high cholesterol based on what they eat and other people don't. So mm. there's genetic reasons as well. Um, and so I think it's, it's probably very multifactorial, but for some women, that's definitely a component. And that's why working with a pain psychologist can be really helpful or relationship therapist. Oh, as I've well. never even heard of a pain psychologist. That's so interesting. Another thing I found fascinating about your book is the fact that a, a speculum isn't supposed to really hurt. No, it no, shouldn't. Didn't all. know that. It's like I have to be sedated, or I oh. um, and I, I think part of that comes from the fact that I have quite like a uh, quite a fairly brutal um history when it comes to sexual assault, and so I definitely, I think I am definitely uh, someone who does not respond well to uh, anyone that I'm not in a relationship with and my vulva or vagina. Um, but I have to be like strapped down, held down by like four to six people, and then I still like have to wriggle because of the pain I mean it's agony to the point where mm. I have like severe health issues to do with my cervix and I sometimes don't get the test that I need because I dread it so much I had no idea that it's not supposed to hurt it has always been like being honestly like being tortured so what is yeah. that what is that so I think that, you know, just as you explained that, you know, when you're with someone that you're not comfortable with, sort of in a clinical setting, many more women can have more of a fear response. And unfortunately, so many women have had, if your initial pelvic exam has been very painful, mm. then of course, you're going to develop a fear response. Of course, it's, you know, it's, you know, you're, you're going to have that sort of fight or flight response. And the problem is, is every time someone sort of holds you down or forces you to have it, it just, it actually reinforces that response. And so whenever I see someone in the office, as soon as there's a sign that there's any, anything going in that direction, and we're not even there yet, we stop. We absolutely stop. So the woman knows she's in complete control. And then we talk about how we might then move forward. Maybe she's going to be comfortable inserting the speculum by herself. And then I can take it from there. Um, maybe she wants to watch. Maybe we need to go to the operating room and have some sedation. So we don't keep reinforcing that cycle. See, again, no one's ever offered me this. I feel like so many of my friends have re like dread this vital part of our healthcare. It's such a pivotal part of our healthcare, especially with the rise of HPV. So we, we desperately need reproductive uh, monitoring and, and for people to check out our gynecology. And, and we don't go, we fear yeah. it, we dread it, you know, because, because this has become so, it's, people can be quite demonic in the whole practice. It's really yeah. important for us to know that that's not supposed to actually happen. It's really, it really um, breaks my heart, you know, when I hear that, because there's so many reasons that doesn't have to be. And it's, um, you know, when I hear that people have been traumatized or told that, you know, oh, well, let's just get it over with, let's be quick. And you know what, that might work for some people, you know, so for example, you know, some people might say, yes, that's the right approach for my pain. Okay. But that requires a conversation to say, how are we going to approach your pain? Because how to approach my pain with the procedure is going to be different, how to approach your pain and someone else's. Yeah. And 
And exactly what you've said, there's so many women who don't get their necessary health screenings because they're so scared to go to the gynecologist because it's such terrible experiences. And, you know, sometimes I think, God, I would love to just have a clinic for people who have the history of having had terrible pap smears because I have so many of, because all I do are look after women who have vulvar and vaginal problems. So they all have pain. And then I'll like, well, let me just try. Let me see if I can do your pap smear. And they're like, oh my God, that didn't hurt at all. And I'm like, yeah, you know, so there are ways around it. And, you know, one of the most, one of the easiest ways is there's a speculum that isn't any bigger than a finger. And, you know, you can start with that and, and put a little bit of numbing medicine at the opening and, you know, what the fuck there's numbing medicine. (laughs) The hell have I been doing? I know. Sometimes I think I need to raise some venture capitalist funds. Oh my God, and, seriously. And I will, I like when this pandemic is over and I'm actually making money again, I will go in on like on that with you. A hundred percent. That would be something I would be happy to genuinely like get behind. This is, insa- this is, ins- I'm having such a moment right now. I'm so angry. I'm sweating. I'm so upset. Yeah. I'm very happy and, to see you. But uh, and, there, yeah. and you know, there's ways around it. I mean, so, you know, so there are, you know, we have a lot of really great data coming out now about just HPV testing as, um, you know, as a monitor instead of pap smears. And so for someone, while you're trying to work with how to, how to maybe get them comfortable with the speculum, maybe they're going to be comfortable putting the swab in their vagina themselves and testing for HPV. So that might be a way to kind of individualize an approach. There's a lot of different ways to do it. And what I find is if I sit down with a patient and I explain all these different ways, all of a sudden, a lot of times the stress just goes away and the exam becomes so much easier. Because once someone realizes they have options and they're not backed up against the wall, it actually changes their perception a lot. Um, you know, so I just think that the answer to me for everything is always education, explaining to people what's mm. happening or, or why they might be having that pain during a procedure is actually really helpful. Fascinating. You've blown my mind. I'm, I'm angry and relieved all at the same time. It's a bit confusing. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now listen, we all carry around different stresses, big, small, medium size, and a lot of us keep them bottled up because sometimes we just have to. But doing that all of the time can really, really start to negatively impact your life. And I say that from experience. I'm British. We are told to never say how we're feeling about anything ever. And uh, that's why so many of us are so sad. Now, a way that I was able to remedy that was by having therapy, which was super helpful for me, not only because it's amazing to get things off your chest, but also all week you know as you're bottling things up because it's not always the time or place to say exactly how you feel you know you're going to get that hour where you're able to get everything off your chest and say it exactly as you want to and this therapist isn't going to take it personally and they're not going to hold it against you or throw it back in your face during an argument over dinner next week you just have this complete freedom honestly I think everyone should have therapy regardless of whether they think they need it because it's so amazing to have a confidant it's a journal that talks back to you and helps you with all of your problems. I think therapy is just a safe space to get everything off your chest to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, then maybe you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be super convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and then you can switch therapists if you don't like them anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash iWay today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash iWay. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact, with semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch. 
It's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. Anyway, we're going to move on uh, away from my my vagina um, and vulva uh, to this new disturbing market of asking women to change uh, things about their smell and quote unquote hygiene, according to basically really what the patriarchy tells us our vaginas should smell like. Right. Yeah. Talk to me about just how evil this is. Yeah, the feminine hygiene industry, big feminine hygiene, it's awful. And I it's mean, booming, which is crazy to me in 2020. I feel like we should be so much further along than this. And yet it's everywhere I look now. Yeah, I see every single day someone sends me a you know, direct message on Instagram about some new product that's, you know, designed to balance the pH or, um, you know, or change the smell or, you know, do something, you know, the number of people who I see using boric acid regularly, vaginally, you know, which they shouldn't be doing. And it's amazing the misinformation that's out there and how predatory, you know, these companies are. And what's really sad is sometimes there's companies that actually have some good products and then they branch out into sort of these other ones because they make money. Yeah. There's so much money in vaginal shame. A hundred percent, just generally female shame. Uh, the One of the most offensive ones that you and I both went after online was some sort of cleaning instrument for the vagina. The vagina and the vulva is self-cleaning, correct? Right. Yeah. It's a self-cleaning oven. It doesn't need any help. You have good bacteria there called lactobacilli, but some people have different good bacteria and that's okay too. There's five different communities of bacteria you can have and, um, and your bacteria take care of it. And I, the thing about vaginal discharge is it's so freaking cool because the cells that get shed from your, your vagina, they hang around there before they come out. And what happens is if you get introduced, if bacteria gets introduced to your body, it doesn't know the cells cells that it meets in your discharge aren't attached to your body. So it attaches to those. And then your vagina is like, ha, psych. And the discharge goes out. I mean, so is that part of what discharge is? And is that also part of what happens during a period? It's like a kind of cleaning. It's a spring. Um, Is it, is that anything to do with that? I'm no periods, not nothing to do with cleaning. That's just, um, the lining of the uterus. No, when, so when no pregnancy happens and progesterone is withdrawn, um, then the lining becomes destabilized and comes out. So it doesn't really do anything for vaginal health. In fact, it, it can have slightly negative effect on vaginal health. I mean, it's just part of the, you know, what I always tell people is evolution's not perfect. It just has to be good enough. And so that's why women actually often notice that they are more likely to have bacterial vaginosis after their period because the red blood cells from your period bind the healthy bacteria. So your healthy bacteria levels are the lowest right after your period. Is a is a tampon good or bad? Um, it's great. It's a fine option. It's not a bad option. Um, you know, I think that um, it's been weaponized again because, you know, there were tampons that were 
less safe, definitely, uh, which were unsafe, you know, with in the 1970s with the rely tampon, which were super absorbent. But, you know, now we have incredibly low risk from modern tampons. Okay. And, you know, women should make decisions that work with their bodies. I mean, what really pisses me off is we frighten women about using things vaginally, right? Again, this gets back to this purity myth, you know, like, what should we do? Just be seeing it sitting in our house for four days, yes. um, you know, until, until the moon, <laughs> until your moon time passes. Ugh. And can you talk to me about specifically why you would like people to not shove things that change allegedly the scent of your vagina or vulva? inside of themselves. I really like, I, this is so important and I like, I cannot stress to you enough how much you need to stay away from the word scented. It, it may as well just say patriarchy founded. Um, yeah. Absolutely. It's really, really genuinely so toxic. Can you just explain that and stress that to people? Because honestly, and I think maybe it's also, especially my age group and younger in particular, or maybe actually, you know, it's probably every age group. In fact, the shaming probably gets worse as you get older, but I noticed that I'm suddenly in my thirties receiving like an influx of some of vaginally scented products um, coming at me via the algorithms. So please, can you just break that down? Why exactly they're bad? Yeah. So, you know, your vaginal ecosystem is very self-contained with the healthy bacteria. Um, there's also really good mucus that covers all the cells. It kind of functions like a netting that mm -hmm. protects the cells. And then you have an acidic pH, which is really detrimental to most bacteria and viruses. So when you introduce something, you're upsetting that equilibrium. It's like, you know, completely changing the environment of a garden. If, if you know, you, your plants are made for one, one type of sun exposure and you change, now you've changed it, you're going to damage things. And so study after study links vaginal products with an increased risk of catching a sexually transmitted infection if exposed. Even cleaning the inside of your vagina with water can do that. Mm -hmm. So it's really important for people to understand that, you know, the discharge exists for a reason, the good bacteria exists for a reason. And when you start putting products in your vagina, you actually start damaging that system. So it'd be quite harmful. And what can happen when people damage their colony of bacteria, of good bacteria, it doesn't always repopulate. So you can actually sometimes end up now with a whole different type of bacteria in your vagina that isn't what you had before and might not be as protective. And what should people do if that happens? Like, well, you need you to, you know, just stopping to use those products well, is the patriarchy most important called, thing. They're pissed. Yeah. They can't believe you're giving us all this information. <laughs> the patriarchy's on the phone. I'm like, hey man, no. Um, so uh, anyway, um, so that's, you know, that's, I think the really, the, the big message is that these things are incredibly harmful to the good bacteria in your vagina and that they can, they can increase your risk of catching a sexually transmitted infection if you're exposed. Um, and it's not, it's not beneficial in any way, shape or form. And, you know, there are other potential harmful things. So, you know, for example, you know, if you're putting garlic in your vagina, you know, is that an astringent? Is that actually going to make mechanically damage the cells. So, you know, it's a very they, harsh, it's a very harsh, uh, substance garlic. Like it's quite a burning substance. Like yeah. I, yeah. I, mean, I imagine ever, shoving that somewhere so sensitive. Right. So, and people recommend it for yeast infections, which they shouldn't. But so if you've ever had a cut on your hand and you've been cutting garlic and you get a little bit in, it's like, Oh, oh my God, that's awful. And so you imagine putting that in your inflamed yeasty vagina, that would be like agony. Um, so yeah, these things are, you know, sadly, I think 
what I'd like to sort of point out is sometimes women are driven to these things because they've been abandoned by medicine. So I can understand how people get there. But what we're seeing now is this sort of women as predators, right? So women are promoting these products. Women are promoting this misinformation, either for clicks on Instagram or to sell products. And so, you know, the call's coming from inside the house, ladies. Exactly. This is this is where I, you know, created that term double agent of the patriarchy. And those people 100% fall into that category for me of the kind of just wolf in sheep's clothing where you are selling us something that's going to damage us that you know that we don't know any better. And you are preying on insecurities that were created for us by patriarchy. I think it's yeah. so unacceptable. And also these people often don't even do these things themselves or they'll advertise they do or they'll, you know, the fact that they do or they'll make a kind of one-off YouTube video about it. Just so, so irresponsible and frustrating. Uh, Talk to me about the dangers of the jade egg and steaming, et cetera. Like, I know that you love all this shit. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Like that jade egg is going to follow me around for the rest of my life. What is a jade egg? What is a jade egg? Um, Well, it's, uh, you know, it's something that uh, somehow came into, only seemed to have been discovered with Gwyneth Paltrow and Goop writing about it. Um, And it's something that you can, I guess, charge with the energy of the moon. And um, put in your vagina to, I don't know, harness your female energy. Oh, no, that, that sounds is. really reasonable, actually. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I, you know, I'm like, oh, it's nothing better than saying your energy as a woman comes from your vagina. Because I mean, that's like the least important thing about, you know, about me and my brain, I think is more important. So, um, yeah, so it's just a grift. It's, you know, there are certainly, you know, a lot of these things are based on, you know, the, the and there's no evidence that this is an ancient practice that anybody did, whether... And being an ancient practice, as we've heard, you know, the ancients didn't actually really understand our bodies. So being an ancient practice isn't a reason to do something. They died really young. You know, so yeah, I mean, and you know, again, um, you know, their belief systems just, you know, were not, they didn't have a medical understanding of the body. So, um, but yeah, so there was no evidence that, you know, jade eggs are any kind of ancient, you know, ancient practice. And so it's just a way for people to put, you know, to sell something. And in fact, most of the things sold as jade probably aren't even jade. Um, So yeah, I think that it is interesting that we haven't actually put any of that sort of stuff towards our brains. You know what I mean? No one's capitalized that. We're not shoving jade eggs up our nostrils and our ears, like just holding them in our cheeks. (laughs) That's so odd. Yeah. So it's just, it's a, you know, it's a way to sell a product. It's a way to upsell something and, you know, and it sort of create this false, sort of this false mythology about the female body. And I'm like, you know what, we're all, we're, we're combating so many entrenched myths about the female body. Why do you have to go and create new things? Like really, you know, what's the point of steaming? Why do they say you should steam it like a chicken? What is that? Um, well, I think, you know, this, uh, it's this misunderstanding that the genital tract needs to be cleaned. So when Gwyneth Paltrow was bragging about it on Goop, you know, she said it was a way to clean your womb. Um, and of course, I hate that word womb. Oh my God. Like it's your uterus. Use a, you, you know, use a grown ass woman yeah. term. It's your uterus. And, um, and so this idea that your body needs cleaning is the is the sort of the core tenant of the patriarchy that you're dirty and there's something wrong with it. And here you are promoting something as cleansing as empowering. Like to me, that's the biggest mind fuck. Like what Mm. the hell? Like it's, it can't do anything. So if you squat over a pot of steaming, so first of all, steam is hot, right? Yeah. Oh my God. I have a friend who burned the shit out of her vulva or vagina, like uh, vulva, I think. Which the out the valve the outside bit, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So burned the shit out of it, trying to steam it. 
That's awful. So and, bad. You know, and, you know, we hear about reports of injuries, but the whole idea, first of all, it mechanically, the steam isn't going to probably get into your vagina. It doesn't need to be cleaned. Um, and if it does, there's oxygen goes along with water vapor and your vagina is a low oxygen environment. It doesn't want oxygen. And so if you steam your vulva and you feel better putting steam against your skin, well, if you really want to put something warm on your vulva, why, why use steam? Why not just put a warm face cloth on your vulva? That's yeah. fine. Hot water That's bottle. Fine. Lovely. Yeah. You know, just get, get yourself a nice face cloth, you know, run it so it's just nice warm temperature and lay it on the outside. And if you find that soothing, that's great. Well, if Jen does not like the jade egg and the steaming, wait till you hear how she feels about vaginal rejuvenation. Oh. Speak. Yeah. Yeah. Preach. I mean, it's, it's this whole idea that it's just another part of your body to weaponize against you. And what's really really awful about a lot of this vulvar surgery that's promoted. And you see these plastic surgeons that have these huge Instagram presences. They're all making the vulva smaller. So, you know, your labia are part of your sexual response. So the labia are the lips and the labia minora, they can protrude beyond the labia majora for 50% of women. So 50% of women have labia minora that are visible and 50% don't. So kind of like, you know, women are all different. And this, so what's, it's weaponized this idea that having visible labia minora is somehow abnormal when it's half the population. And your labia minora have specialized nerve endings. So trimming the labia minora to make it smaller is equivalent to trimming the penis and making it smaller. Yeah. I, I've yet to hear of cosmetic surgery for men that involves penile reduction. I mean, I think it gets back to this idea again, that we celebrate everything about the male penis and mm -hmm. the larger, larger, the better. And we diminish everything about women and your labia are part of your sexual response cycle. And what is that message that we're saying when we say cosmetically that should be smaller? Like what's, I mean, that is such a toxic message. And so, you know, there was a study um, actually from Britain where they looked at um, young women coming in wanting to have labial reduction. And, you know, we sort of have this range of what, what typical size is. Cause mm -hmm. I don't want to say normal cause you know, you can be outside the typical range and you're still normal, mm -hmm. but not one of the women was even outside of the typical range who thought their labia were large. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Talk to me about abortion. It's something that you and I again come up against. Yeah. <laughs> Quite a tsunami of uh, heat over. Um, we are both pro-choice. We are not, uh, we are both people who also do not think pro-life is a thing. We, we both think pro-birth is more of a, I don't know, a precise way of describing these people who don't actually want to support the human once it's out of the womb. Um, 
Can we just go through some of the biggest myths that you find frustrating that are out there? Because it's it's really important that we have these conversations as the campaign of misinformation in order to further the agenda uh, of, you know, the, I mean, some of the members of the Supreme Court <laughs> even who are trying to campaign to take away reproductive rights for human beings. Can you tell me some of the most frustrating and scary myths? Well, I think actually the most frustrating thing for me is this concept that that we need any kind of law about abortion because we don't. Um, you know, you you shouldn't have to be told what you can or can't do with your body. And the example I always give is Canada. There is no abortion law in Canada. It's not legal. It's not illegal. It's just a procedure that women can have or anyone who gets pregnant can have with their medical provider. And that's it. And stunningly, I know it's not shocking to anyone who is pro-choice is that guess what? The abortion rate is actually lower. Um, and, you know, so abortion rates are a complex myth, a mix of, you know, socioeconomic issues, um, of lack of access to um, contraception. I mean, the most common reason that people have an abortion is they have an unplanned pregnancy. And so if you want people to not have abortions, if that's your goal, if that's your stated goal, then then having access, free access to long-term contraception is the way to achieve that goal. So, you know, I think that the, we have to be really frank that this forced birth movement is actually not about abortion. It's about preventing women from controlling their bodies. That's mm-hmm. a very, it's a very specific way that that's designed. When they say that this is a kind of sentient being from conception and that it has a, a full heartbeat and a beard and a suit on at sort of six weeks into conception uh, and into uh, gestation, is that what it's called? Yeah, just a, yeah, gestation. Yeah, sure. sure. Uh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you can use whatever, yeah. Since we're talking about pro-life terms, you can use whatever term you want because they sure do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> into the rodeo, six weeks into the rodeo. Right. Um, uh, so, so can you just spill some facts about the heartbeat and the development of a human being in a uterus? Sure. So, you know, a heartbeat doesn't mean anything. I mean, frogs have a heartbeat, like, like, uh, you know, that's not a sign of, you know, of life. That's a sign that, that there's a structure called the heart pumping, you know, blood through the body. That's it. Um, you can have brain death and have a beating heart. So that, that doesn't mean anything. And I think that, um, you know, when, uh, you know, forced birth politicians, you know, twist themselves into all kinds of sort of knots, trying to sort of explain why, um, why a fetus is somehow sentient. What they're really saying is the life of the person doesn't matter. The life of the pregnant person doesn't matter. And so I, I just think that, you know, you can try to counter those arguments in any way you want, but since they're not sensical, it's really hard to. I mean, it, you know, the most important person is the person who's pregnant. That's it. Um, you know, everything else is secondary. And I trust that person to make decisions with their bodies in the, in the way that they, they feel fit. Uh, and I think that there's this narrative that, you know, that, that, that people, um, you know, if people only knew what was happening to the body, if women only knew, if they're only smart enough to know. And I'm like, wait a minute, people know what's inside them. When someone is pregnant, they're not stupid. They know exactly what's happening in their uterus. They know exactly what they're doing. When they have an abortion, they know exactly how it's coming out. And so it's very infantilizing to me when these forced birthers talk about, oh, you know, trying to sort of use in graphic terms, for example, how an abortion happens. Do you think the person having the abortion hasn't figured that out? Because 
because they know, they know mm-hmm. exactly, they, they know what's in their body. They know how it's going to come out. They've put two and two together. So, you know, these are all ways to sort of either infantilize women that they don't understand or to make it seem, you know, selfish when you're talking, and you're right? demonized. Yeah. A hundred percent. Oh, this has been so interesting. Thank you so much. I, f- I feel like there's still a billion other things that we need to discuss vaginally, but maybe you'll come back another time and we can get sure. into, you know, because there's still also the menopause to cover, uh, which we will definitely come back and do together. Because I know that that is another thing that you are working on raising awareness and destigmatizing and demystifying. And so that's something that I'm very, very interested in. Well, you and I both spend a lot of our time trying to make sure that people feel less alone, less isolated in their experiences. I so appreciate appreciate your advocacy. Uh, I really, really do. I think you are such a powerful, um, you're now a powerful part of my life from a distance. You are someone that I recommend to, to everyone to follow and to, to listen to. I think you speak so much sense. You're so unapologetic. You are so forthright and, and you speak in a way that really resonates with me because I think part of the way that I try and raise awareness about certain injustices is just, isn't this fucking ridiculous? And I, I'm, I'm not even sometimes as angry as I am baffled before angry, you know, and I think that that's a really important way to spell some of these injustices out to, to women in particular, but to, you know, all females that say, but isn't this ridiculous? Yeah, it gives you an idea about sort of the tenacity of the myths and how pervasive um, oppression has been that we're still here, you know, in this age of, you know, everybody having a computer in their pocket, basically, with a smartphone. And yet, you know, getting this information across seems so difficult. And it's because those are the, the... the absolute divides created by the patriarchy. And when people don't have accurate information, it's impossible to be empowered. Well, this has been a masterclass. You are the patron saint of the vagina and the vulva. I am thrilled to have been able to spend this time with you. My brain is exploding. Uh, Everyone, please go out and buy the Vagina Bible and follow Jen Gunter on social media. Dr. Jen Gunter, before you leave, would you please tell me, what do you weigh? Um, I weigh the weight of all the women that came before me who didn't have the knowledge. And I want to fix that. I think that that's how I weigh myself in society is a writer of knowledge wrongs. Well, thank you so much for all of your myth busting and your patriarchy bashing. I appreciate you so much and I can't wait to have you back on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I Weigh with Jamila Jamil is produced and researched by myself, Jamila Jamil, Erin Finnegan and Kimmy Gregory. It is edited by Andrew Carson and the beautiful music that you're hearing now is made by my boyfriend, James Blake. If you haven't already, please rate, review and subscribe to the show. It's a great way to show your support. I really appreciate it and it amps me up to bring on better and better guests. Lastly, at I Weigh, we would love to hear from you and share what you weigh at the end of this podcast. You can leave us a voicemail at 1-818-660-5543 or email us what you weigh at iweighpodcast at gmail.com. It's not in pounds and kilos, so please don't send that. It's all about your just, you, you know, you've been on the Instagram anyway. And now we would love to pass the mic to one of our listeners. Hello, I'm Gayan and I'm from Belgium. I weigh my kindness and empathy my unapologetic loudness and humor, my queerness and sexuality. I weigh my art and love for movies and books. And I weigh my mistakes, and there are many. 
and my ability to learn from them. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.